Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And welcome to another edition of Female First, the first of 2024. Yeah. Yes. Which means we are once again joined by the wonderful, the winsome, the fantastic <laughs> Eve. Welcome, Eve. Hey, yeah. y'all. Happy New Year. Happy 2024. Still getting used to saying that year. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I got very confused because there was an expiration date on my stuff. I was like, that's next year. And I was like, wait, oh no, this happened. <laughs> no. <laughs> Throw it away. Oh no. Throw it away, Samantha. <laughs> I drink it. <laughs> okay, keep going. <laughs> yes. Well, it is so good to have you with us, Eves, because uh, we didn't, we weren't able to have you for the last month of the year of 2023. So we have some catching up to do. How yes. have you been? What have you been up to? I've been up to figuring out what the heck is going on in this new year. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um, what have I been up to? I didn't really do much for the new year, for the holidays. I just kind of stuck around. It's, it's been pretty quiet for this, for the end of the year. But I think this new year is off and running to a good start. I'm writing things I love. I'm reading good things. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to the rest of 2024 and seeing what happens. Nice. Nice. <laughs> it is. We we had a podcast episode about this recently. Samantha and I both really don't do anything for New Year's either. But one of the things that I love to do is just write whatever I want to write, read whatever I want to do, read whatever I want to read. Um. So yeah, I'm I'm down with that completely. That sounds yeah. nice. Yeah. I didn't really make any. I made some lists for things that I want to like things that I'm aiming for this year because there are some big things that I'm aiming for. But I don't feel too attached to anything. Like, I think that the way things are pacing out and things that are happening already in the beginning of the year, I feel like I'm going in a good direction. I don't need to be forcing anything, you know, trying to hold on to anything too tightly that I have planned. So I don't know. I got I got some things that I'm I'm looking at that I wrote down, you know, that I put out into the world and that I'm focused on. But it's I'm going with the flow. Yeah. 
Nice. It's <laughs> a good way to be. Yes. Uh, we did learn a fun fact about you, and that is that What's you that? watch UFC. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I do guilty. That's okay. <laughs> that's amazing. I think that's hilarious because that's just so different from your personality that I'm like, that's what you enjoy? That makes sense. So in my head of like the opposite. You don't think I like to watch people beat other people up? <laughs> and that would not be something I would assume immediately. <laughs> that's not the first thing. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I wish I had the skills. I kind of like, I don't want to get beat up. I say that every no. time I watch it. I, I don't. I just, I don't want to be hit in the face. I don't want scars. I don't want cauliflower ear. Yeah. I don't want to be healing injuries all the time. I've been to physical therapy multiple times in my life <laughs> and it is a process. Yeah. Um, I don't want to have to go through strict eating and regimens. I don't want to have to be so serious about <laughs> maintaining a certain schedule of exercise. Like, I like, uh, you know, I'm good without those things, but I do wish I had the fighting skills at the same <laughs> time. Times, yeah. I do wish I could have, like, had the combat skills as well. And, like, just in case, you know, those, you know, imagined moments of, like, what if this happens? Would I be able to do these reactionary things? Uh, but in, in general, like, the thought of being hit, no, thank you. <laughs> the one thing about it, though, is that you really realize how how important skill is when it comes to combat. <laughs> it's like sometimes people, you know, people can be way bigger than another person, but they just don't have the skill that they have and whatever the skill may be. Like if it's grappling, it's like one person may not know how to get out of a certain position because they just don't have the skill and you can right. be so much smaller than them and maybe... When it comes to power or strength, you may have that over them, but they can still they can still kill you. you know? right. They can still injure you. It's true. Very, very deeply. And right. uh deeply. It's interesting. It's very, very primitive. There are a lot of times when I'm I'm watching and I'm looking at the crowd yelling ridiculous things and seeing people just like fighting for 15 minutes in an octagon. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's what humanity's about. <laughs> They're doing oh, that ancient times. Oh, yeah. dear. Ancient, ancient history that I'm watching with mm -hmm. a lot of other politics wrapped up into it. Right, right. But that aside, you know, good old-fashioned clean fun. Clean fun. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite segments is when those really big burly dudes who've never had any training, but they work out, want to challenge uh, the UFC women, and then they get their asses handed to them. Yeah. That's my favorite thing to watch, honestly. Like, <laughs> I've seen TikTok clips of that. I'm like, yes, that is that is satisfaction. Yeah. And seeing, like, this 130-pound woman, because she's all muscle, with this 250-pound dude who's like, I, I could take her. Oh, yeah. And then being, like, taken out in, like, two seconds and in a chokehold and asleep. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm, I do enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think with sports, I, because I don't watch a lot of other sports, it's really fun to look at people. Like I've learned a lot over the years of watching it, like knowing what to look for when people are more skilled than other people when I'm pretty sure I know how a fight's going to go. But it's cool to watch people and be like, you're not going to get this. You need to do this. You need to do that. <laughs> Meanwhile, I know nothing. I've never fought. I've never done any sort of martial arts. Definitely haven't done mixed martial arts. But, you know, you get to be on the other side of sc the screen and just mm -hmm. judge them <laughs> and yell at You're them. You're a commentator. That sounds like you, that you need to try. I pretend to be. I do pretend to <laughs> be a commentator be when I watch. 
<laughs> I need you to try one time around for a good uh, fight and then just be yes. a guest commentator. That would be phenomenal. You know, that would be fun. But I think about it. It's funny because, I, I you know, we all podcast here, so we talk a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we do it for work. But when I watch commentators, I'm like, that's a lot of talking. <laughs> they, yeah. they do so much filler talking. It is, they do. They say the same things in different ways, which honestly, I am very inspired by. I guess I should say, <laughs> as a professional right. speaker, they know how to say the same thing over and over in nine million different ways. Right. And yeah. I, you know, I can't help but I can't deny the the legitimacy and the skill in that. You have to get a catchphrase is what I found, like in, in most like commentators that you know, so that they can be redone by others and you know immediately who it is like the different mm-hmm. football or the I love um soccer when it's the uh the Irish commentators or Scottish commentators where they just get angry it's like <laughs> the players those are my favorites but I've never heard that skill. before oh I you know, oh I would have to find I've something because they just get yelled at about being a pansy and they mm-hmm. need to get up because they're like <laughs> so it's become and I, I don't I can't play soccer I can't imagine the strength in itself. But a lot of the times, uh, t- different players would try to get fouls, penalties mm-hmm. rather, I guess. Uh, and so would kind of dramatically fall or do these things. And so some sc- Scottish commentators would get really pissed off about it and would just scream at the, at the tell them to, to get, telling them to get up and stop doing this because they were wow. getting so upset by all of the penalties and constant stopping. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. It does seem like it would be frustrating. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think you should take on okay. one guest. Maybe. We need to find a way to get this done. Yeah. And then you should come up with a, your persona. Mm-hmm. If you ever were uh, in a fantasy world, <laughs> mm-hmm. going to be a fighter. <laughs> I mean, that's the fun part, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So we're giving you, like, homework to ask. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, you know. a very long to-do list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's important. It's important to you. need this to be drawn. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio... And producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. 
Hey guys, LeVar Arrington here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck. Like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before or check out the fully redesigned tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a toyota truck you buy toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit Visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I was going to do a transition about uh, <laughs> breaking down things that haven't aged well and how that relates <laughs> to who we're talking about today because you were kind of talking about that with mm-hmm. UFC. Uh, but I say let's just go in. <laughs> There's no really transition for this. One. No, we got you uh, the first time, Andy. Yes. Uh, who did you bring for us to talk about today, Eves? So today we'll be talking about Drusilla Dungy Houston. So I guess if we're talking about things that haven't aged well, she did talk a lot about ancient history. A lot of her work was focused on that. She cared a lot about history and sharing history and educating people on history. And there are some things in her work that are disputed, have been kind of shot down. And there are other things that have lasted and have aged well. So I think there is somewhere we can go with that, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) We have a transition. (laughs) So (laughs) Drusilla Dungy Houston was the earliest African-American woman to write a multi-volume study of ancient Africa. So she has a long history of writing about history. And, yeah, I'm excited to share her story with everyone today. Yes, yes. This one is another fascinating one I didn't know about. So thank you, as always. Um, Shall we get into the history? Yes, we shall. So Drusilla Dungy Houston was born in January of 1876 in Harpers Ferry in West Virginia. So her parents were Reverend John William Dungy and Lydia Ann Taylor Dungy. So they have their own history, and the way that they brought up Drusilla Dungy Houston factored a lot into the direction that she chose to go in, because John was an educator, he was a publisher, and he was a missionary who had founded Baptist churches across the United States that were mostly in rural areas. He was born into slavery, and he escaped it, and he made his way to Canada, but eventually he came back to the States. And so John and Lydia went around the South building churches. They were members of the American Baptist Home Missionary Society. And that's how Houston herself, too, became devoted to the Baptist church throughout her life, because that's something that was really part of her early life. It's something that her parents instilled in her. At one point, this is later in Houston's history, but she even said in this response letter that she wrote to someone was talking down about the church. She said, quote, the faith of the Negro race is the hope of America. So she instilled a lot of importance. She placed a lot of importance upon faith, specifically 
the Christian faith. Um, it guided a lot of what she did. It was the reason that she wrote. It was the thing that was the foundation of why she did so much of what she did when it came to educating people and writing about history, and specifically the history of Black people. So Houston had nine siblings, but only four of them lived to adulthood. And their names were Roscoe, Irving, Blanche, and Ella. So her siblings also did notable things. Her brother, Roscoe, he was an activist, and he was the owner and editor of the newspaper Black Dispatch, which is out of Oklahoma. And after John, who was Houston's father, after he died, Roscoe, Houston's brother, supported the family. He would sell vegetables. And Houston's other brother, Irving, was a managing editor of the Chicago Enterprise and an editor of the Negro Champion, which was out of New York. So Houston, she went to finishing schools when her family lived in the northern states, but she didn't go to college. And the family moved to Oklahoma Territory in 1892, and they were pretty well off. And Houston even kind of later <laughs> really places a lot of importance on how well off she was. She was like, I know my class, and I know that I didn't go to college, but my parents had a lot of books, and we had a lot of arts and culture around us. She, she did do a little bit of that in her writing, <laughs> which was interesting. <laughs> but hey, if you got it, flaunt it, I guess. <laughs> um, so she studied music. And went to the Northwestern Conservatory of Music in Minnesota. She studied classical piano. And there are stories of how she played piano for people. And she gave poetry readings at people's get-togethers, which sounds pretty swanky. And she had plans to be a concert pianist, but that didn't happen. She switched her focus. And from 1892 to till around the turn of the century, she worked as a kindergarten teacher in Oklahoma. In 1898, she married a man named Price Houston. He was apparently a businessman who was 20 years older than her. I didn't really know much about him. But I do know that she had two children with him, one named Florence, and the other one was a daughter who died pretty young. But Houston, she opened McAllister Seminary for Girls in Oklahoma, and she led that school for 12 years. She also wrote a screenplay in 1915 called The Madden Mob, which was written as a refutation of birth of a nation. And in 1917, she went to Sepulpa, Oklahoma, and she served as the principal of the Oklahoma Baptist College for Girls. And there she stayed as the director and the principal of the school until 1923. She also started the Oklahoma Vocational Institute of Fine Arts and Crafts, which was a private school. So she did a bunch of work in the school space. Um, she was very invested in the education specifically of Black children, and, the, and but also like reading and education in general. She talked a lot about how everybody needed to be educated, specifically about Black history and Black history and the ways she was talking about it, which we'll get to a little bit later, but she cared a lot about it. And there is a scholar, her name is Dr. Peggy Brooks Bertram, who I'm going to be referring to more in this episode because she is, has been really invested in the history of the Dunty family, especially Houston. And she wrote a lot about them, did a lot of research. So I'm going to refer to things she said and some of the research that she has done quite a bit in this episode. One thing that Dr. Brooks Bertram said about Houston was that she was, quote, an extraordinarily private woman who felt compelled to thrust herself into the major social, 
and political dialogues of her era, end quote. So that makes a lot of sense because of her upbringing. Apparently, her father didn't really want novels in the house, which is for shame because I love novels, love fiction. But I guess he was about that nonfiction and that clearly showed up in her in the work that Houston did. So Houston was involved in her brother Roscoe's newspaper. So this was a whole clearly also having to do with the way their parents raised them. The whole family was invested in journalism and scholarship, in literary works, in political action, in philosophy. You know, they were invested in all of those spheres of interest. And her brother Roscoe had a newspaper, The Black Dispatch, And according to Dr. Brooks Bertram, between 1914 and 1939, Houston wrote more than 2,000 editorials. So she was busy with her pen. And Houston was also a lecturer on African history. She was a self-taught historian, and she did a lot of independent research using all the books that her family had in her library and other ones that she came across in her independent research. And this is where in her story, we get to the major focus of her biography, one of the things that she's the most remembered for. So I think it is, you know, this happens so many times in people's work that there is one large seminal text that is the thing that they're really well remembered for. But Houston did have, like I just said, she had 2000 editorials. So she did have a wealth of writing. But it seemed like this, she considered this her, what would you call it, magnum opus as well, this book, because she was kind of like, she had some comments where she said, yeah, I did a bunch of those editorials and all that stuff. But the serious thing, no, that's all the work that I did in this research is ancient history. And the work that I'm referring to is Wonderful Ethiopians of the Ancient Kushite Empire. That's the work that is... The thing that she focused on in her life that she spent many years working on and she really cared a lot about and she cares so much about people being able to read it and understand the history that she was talking about in the book, talking about Kushite as in Kush, the ancient kingdom in northern Africa. And she said that W.E.B. Du Bois's book, The Negro, was her inspiration for writing Wonderful Ethiopians. And this is selfishly one of my favorite parts of her story because I love beefs. (laughs) And this was kind of a beef between two notable people, two people who were really intelligent and really invested in the work that they were doing, um, really cared about Black culture and about Black history. And this part of her story is really, really interesting to me because she said she was inspired by the Negro, W.E.B. Du Bois's book. But Du Bois didn't mention it in his publication, The Crisis, which, I mean, was a, a, a very important publication. He said he would mention it in there. And when she wrote to him, telling him about her book, he told her basically that she needed to study a little bit more before writing about ancient history. He was like, oh, yeah, this book is, is very interesting. Thank you for sending it to me. But mm, I think you need to return to your studies if you're going to write things that people can read. And so understandably, she kind of 
took offense to that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. why she started writing like I'm I have studied, I I know this level. Yeah. I am high class. Maybe yeah. in like response to him to everything. Yeah, she did. She did and she responded back to him kind of saying that where she was like, "Um, excuse me, I don't need your white institutions to to, to validate the work that I do, I have a bunch of books in my life. Well, you know, I my family had a bunch of books in their library. I've done my own research. You know, I've created this whole book based on so many other sources that I've read. So after this point, she really came in heavy and came in hot with the criticism in public and in private of Du Bois, um, which was rough because I know a lot of people who are listening here will be familiar with W.E.B. Du Bois. He really was very influential in the literary world, um, in the social world, political sphere at the time. So that was a heavy target. You know, he wasn't a small target to come up against, but she was not playing. Um, She was defending, you know, her own legitimacy and the importance of her work. But it was also hard, one, because women were reliant on men for publication at the time. They were the ones who were the liaisons and the ones who ran these publishers. And so you needed these kinds of connections to be able to get your work out to more people. And of course, Houston wanted to do that because she really cared about more people knowing this ancient history. And, you know, on top of needing men in general for publication, it was Du Bois. (laughs) So a lot of people were in love with Du Bois because of who he was and what he could do for people. And rightfully so. He was a very notable scholar in his own right. So the way that it seemed to me because of how people responded, you know, they weren't going to take too well to this woman who they didn't know, Houston, who they were just being introduced to, versus this big, this figure with this huge stature of Du Bois. They're like, well, who are you coming up against (laughs) Du Bois? So in in my mind, I kind of see this as a cancellation in a way because Houston, she didn't, she, her book didn't do amazingly well. It didn't get into as many spaces as she wanted it to get into. So <laughs> that is um, a fascinating part of her story, I feel like. And it goes deeper than that. And you can, you know, you can see that in the public criticism that she had of Du Bois where she would come up against him where she was lauding him before in in newspapers and magazines she started going in the other direction and really <laughs> calling him out in a, a negative way so yeah beef in history <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> mm-hmm. but okay so but on the book it was published in 1926 and this was volume one It was subtitled Nations of the Kushite Empire, Marvelous Facts from Authentic Records. Like I said earlier, she couldn't really get access to these white publishing houses that were publishing a lot of Black text at the time. So she established Ethiopian Press and she used the Black Dispatches printing presses to make her book. So this was a self-publishing effort. And at first, 500 copies were printed and they were sold for $2.50, which would be about $43 today. But she couldn't market the book because her own funds were wrapped up in this thing. And so she sold it through mail order. So at this time, it was in 1920. So this was during the Harlem Renaissance. There was a lot of focus on Black work, on Black culture, literature, poetry. 
and fiction. But Houston herself, she wasn't really a fan of the Harlem Renaissance kind of work. She was more interested in history than she was in art. And she was kind of like upset about how people were gravitating more toward the arts than history, which is very interesting to me. Um, I know that, you know, when you have a work and you have this text that you work so hard on, you really got to, you got to be your own biggest fan. <laughs> you know, you got to root for yourself. <laughs> and I understand that. Um, part of me wonders, you know, I, 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 and I also know like when you're working on a work that's that big, it can feel like the entire world is revolving around it. <laughs> so that part is really interesting to me because it's not as if all those things can't coexist together and a lot of people who were involved in the arts and during the Harlem Renaissance period were obviously like making a lot of progress when it came to writing works that were true to them, that they were able to get into larger mainstream attention. But yeah, so it was important too. Like it's still, obviously, you know, everybody knows I care about history too. So of course that's still important. <laughs> but um yeah, at the end of volume one, she says that book two, she mentions a book two and says that it gives more authentic information upon this subject than any other book extant. So these books, she was, it was, they were kind of a correction of the record, a way to uplift the Black history and how its origins were in Africa, specifically the Nile Valley she referred to it as a cradle of civilization and was going up against this racist history that was put forth by many archaeologists. So it's been referred to as kind of like race writing or racial uplift writing. But I don't want to downplay the work because she was very focused in research and focused in history in the work that she did. However, that original publication didn't have a bibliography. It didn't have footnotes. It didn't have endnotes or an index, which was standard for this kind of factual writing at the time as it is now. And so she got praise for her work and of how deeply she dug into this ancient history, how she was refuting uh, a history that revolved around European history and how integral people in Africa and what she considered the cradle of civilization to be. But she also got criticism for not having sources listed in her work for any of those things. So people were kind of like, yeah, you're saying a lot and this is really fascinating. And it looks like you did your work, but I just can't see your work. So that was also, you know, a, a very real and a very valid challenge for people reading her work and trying to suss out the credibility um, in her work and where the plausible deniability was. She also got criticism for her language being too flowery. Though she said that she did that on purpose, she made it less technical in order to reach people who were new to the info that she was presenting. So that makes sense too with her background because she really cared about educating children and people across all borders. She said, oh, I want this. I want white people to read this. I want black people to read this. I want white people to read this to see where they've gone wrong and how they misunderstand everything when it comes to history, how they deny because of racism, 
that the greatness and the splendor and the importance um, and the vastness of knowledge that came from this area of the world. I want everybody to read it. She wanted to sell enough books to be able to put out a second edition. And she wanted it to go to all kinds of places. So she wanted it to be in the classroom. You know, she wanted, you know, individuals to be able to read the book. So she she really cared about disseminating this knowledge. She said that slavery had broke Black folks in the diaspora's knowledge of the greatness of our origin. So it was very important for us to unlearn all of these things that we were learning as standards in the curriculum and classrooms we were in, learning about this European history, but we weren't connecting it back to this ancient African history. And she wanted that connection to be made. And she said that a lot of that was broken because of the institution of slavery and how that separated people from knowledge of their own actual history and therefore also the the greatness of that history. So really was work that she cared a lot about. And according to Dr. Brooks Bertram, her work, quote, seriously challenged the belief that women writers should limit themselves to poetry, novels, short stories, and plays because that was kind of the sphere that women could have been expected to work in at the time. I mean, we know that this was uh, an accomplishment. Like, Houston was a pioneer in this field for women. There were men who were writing about work, who were writing about ancient history as it related to Africa. But there weren't many women who were doing this. And Dr. Brooks Bertram said that Houston's work also challenged the idea that a person had to be a PhD to be a historian, which is something that Houston herself railed against, obviously in her, you know, her her communications with Du Bois, but in general, she went forth with her work without having to be validated by a degree to do the research and share the research that she did. So there is some discrepancy around how many volumes actually exist. So we know of the first one, the one that we were just talking about. Houston herself said that she wrote multiple volumes, maybe around six volumes of this work, but there's not really a way to validate that because we don't have a lot of those other works. There are works that have been listed, like ones including Origin of the Aryans and one called Kushites of Western Europe, and there are some other ones that Houston mentioned as well, but we don't know where any of those are, if they even exist, if they existed in manuscript form, if they were ever printed, any of that kind of thing. Um, Dr. Brooks Bertram did say that she was given a corrected edition in 2001 of Wonderful Ethiopians, and she said that it was undated, but had a bibliography, index, footnotes, and more chapters and that the corrections that were included in that edition may have been made in the late 1920s or early 1930s. But in the end, a lot of Houston's work is lost to time, including some of her, her fiction, poetry, essays, things like that. But we have some of it. And we know a little bit more about Houston's life. We know that she was an active member of different clubs, like the Federated Women's Clubs of Oklahoma. 
We also know that in 1934, she served as a religious director of the Oklahoma Home for Delinquent Boys. She was fluent in different languages. And in 1936, she was interviewed by folks in the Negro Studies Unit of the Federal Writers Project that was under the Works Progress Administration. But she did deal with illness for many years of her life. She was affected by the flu epidemic in 1918, and she later got tuberculosis. And that was something that really weighed heavily on her health over the years. And she ended up dying in February of 1941 in Arizona. And true to her faith in Christianity, her headstone says, to die is to gain. Um, Yeah. So in 1985, Wonderful Ethiopians was republished through Black Classic Press, which publishes obscure and significant works by and about people of African descent. And she was also recognized posthumously. And there is a memorial scholarship that's named in her honor that recognizes emerging women scholars of African descent. So she she did get recognition during her time. She was able to sell some copies of her work, though I imagine it's not as many copies as she would have wanted to sell um, and not as many volumes of the book as she would have wanted to pass out. But her legacy lives on in the work of all the other scholars who went on to talk about the, relate the history of people in the Black diaspora going back to Africa, showing how those origins were ones that needed to be uplifted and ones that needed to be learned about and honored, and how a lot of the separation from that history came from the history of the slave trade around the world. So very noble work, work that was pioneering and happy to be able to share it today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. 
Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I did not know the UFC... Uh, the <laughs> at the top would have so much related. I didn't know there was going to be beef. Uh, exactly. Um, there was beef. There was there fighting was... involved. Uh, Love that. There's some punches were thrown. <laughs> she sounds like a fascinating person. Yeah. <laughs> like, I love her kind of, like, shunning the arts and the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, this... History, right? Is <laughs> what we should be dealing with, talking right. about. Yeah, kind of like okay, boomer, kind of a situation. Like, yeah, <laughs> uh, like we should be talking about history. What do you know about that? You're worried about your arts. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, no, I know she didn't mean it that way. <laughs> I'm just yeah. joking. No, but, for sure. But it does have that kind of because I have. Um, a relative who's like that, who thinks fiction is worthless, like art is worthless. Like he he would be somebody who wouldn't have any non, uh, anything but nonfiction mm-hmm. in his home. And I've never understood it. I don't get it. But I just, when you were sharing that story, I was like, yeah, I, I feel like I know this person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there, as you know, there are still people who, who feel this way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I find it fascinating, too, though. She was kind of ahead of her time with that needing the flowery language so that people can find history accessible. Mm-hmm. Like We see that today with historians writing almost fictional levels of accounts of what's happening. And they're not fictional, but he, they just draw out into a storytelling so that people can read and understand better what was happening during his, historical times and also bring more interest, probably also sell more books. But like yeah. she was ahead of her time in that way in, in creating something that was accessible instead of just being like, this is what it is. Yeah, I agree with you, Samantha. So thanks for bringing up that point because like publishing was a lot different then than it is now. (laughs) And to get things to more people's bookshelves because the focus is on, you know, how big can we make this reach? How many people's shelves can we reach? How much more money can we make because of volume? Mm -hmm. Um, But back then it was more like, well, where where are your sources? (laughs) There wasn't so much... um, separation between like, okay, what kind of balance can we bring between the factual, the facts in this thing and also the readability of this thing? Right. Uh, Didn't seem to be so much of a concern back then, but it does seem like kind of a, kind of a pity because she had something that could touch so many people's hands, but it wasn't able to get out there like that because of the challenges that she had with the actual publishing process and the holes that were dug (laughs) with the beef (laughs) and whatever else contributed to it. You know, I know there was no longitudinal study done on what were the factors that (laughs) caused her book to not make it to more people and fewer people to read it. But um, yeah, I'm sure those things did not help a book that seemingly could have been in the interest of way, way more people. (laughs) Yeah. And I also think, you know, I think she made a very great valid point about the kind of the PhD thing and that you don't have to 
because that can be so like gatekeepy and how much money do you have and what connections you have in the first place and it takes so so long Mm -hmm. um which in one way is yes that makes sense and that is good but if we were only getting information from from people who had the time and uh ability to do that then it would be far less uh that we would have and it is also kind of funny because um samantha and i we wrote a book recently and it was a big thing about the bibliography because we were both like, why can't we put Freaking every out. source in there? <laughs> mm-hmm. And they were like, only the ones that you really used. And this confused us greatly. And we we're like, well, if we listed it, we used it. Because <laughs> I thought that was just like practice, yeah. like common practice. But they had mm-hmm. us like go through and cut out. Wow. Only And so only the ones that we used like a lot from huh. are in the back. Okay. And it's more of like a sources listed thing. But it was just because I, I we've talked about that in the podcasting world for a long time is that sometimes you we used to list our sources and now we don't. Um, and we still keep them in case anyone asks. Mm-hmm. But I always thought when you write a book in the back. Yeah. Immediately. The Especially if it's a historical context. Yeah. yeah. Like we didn't make this up. No. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's just interesting hearing this where she got a lot of flack for not yeah. having the sources. And now today, it seems. <laughs> they don't want them. They don't care. TikTok is the source. You could just put TikTok in the back and they were like, oh, I saw it on the internet. Yeah. I will gladly do that. <laughs> next time, next book, y'all, just put, <gasps> I, put, I saw it on the internet and be done with it. The publisher's like, yeah, you. it's great. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Thank you. Kids will love it. Kids will love it. love it. Yes. Oh, they know about TikTok. <laughs> yes, for me. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, though, I think that there was a little bit more of a burden of proof on Houston because yeah. of the theory she was espousing. She was putting forth things. A lot of people were like, mm, I don't know about that. Can you prove it to me? Like, this is the origin of civilization. This came from where? You know, we have mm-hmm. alternate knowledge. Who are you? <laughs> they were like, you know, so they had all these questions. Yeah. They had a yeah. lot of questions, I think, uh, because it was such, it was, it, they were such big ideas that she was putting forth. Yes. And I, I am a big fan. I think, yes, it's good to have sources and then you can like look at them up and do more reading yourself and maybe uh, find out more yourself. It was just kind of funny to me because we had this Happened with our book recently. Yeah, uh, I, I, I didn't hope it didn't hit home yeah. too hard, y'all. <laughs> it's okay, Eves. It's okay. Don't, we're crying on the inside. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Now we need to find someone to have a, a beef with. I don't know whom, but no, who would it be? <laughs> no, please. Yeah, I can't handle it. Joe Let's go. Joe. Oh no, no, I'm just like. And then we get like all kinds of stalkerish emails. Yeah. yeah. All right. You don't we're, want we're that. We're fine with We don't care about Joe Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take that back. Take that back. Run it back. <laughs> Nobody heard All it. All good. <laughs> um, well, it was a delight as always, Eve. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, for sharing this story with us. Uh, where can the good listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram at not apologizing. You can also go to my website there. You can get to all of the other places. My website is evesjeffcoat.com. You can also find me on the podcast On Theme, which is a podcast 
about Black storytelling. If you want to learn more about that show, you can go to wherever you listen to podcasts or you can go to ontheme.show. And you can also hear me on many, many other episodes of Cementy, doing female first, talking about women in history who had pioneering accomplishments. Yes. And we think we're coming up on a milestone, although there's confusion about what the milestone is. <laughs> but we'll, we'll Speaking of record keeping. <laughs> <laughs> Not doing a great job over here on Smithy. But we will we will look into it. In the meantime, listeners, if you would like to contact us, you can. You can email us at Stephanie and Momstuff at iHeartMedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast or on Instagram and TikTok. That stuff I never told you. We have a T-Bellic store, and yes, we do have a book. You can get it wherever you get your books. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina, our executive producer, Maya, and our contributor, Joey. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.